Today's interview has been a long time coming, and if I'm honest, it's way overdue. I brought on my friend, Monique Dusan. Some of you have heard me talk about her before. Monique's area of expertise is in critical race theory. CRT. This is something that has exploded in our country the last few years, and I have been slowly watching it, trying to take it all in, learn as much about this as I can. I ask her about what this even is. I ask her about the history of it. How did it all of a sudden become prominent in our society? We talk about Black Lives Matter. We talk about microaggressions, inclusion, equity. As many things as we could cram into this interview is what we talked about. <laughs> I absolutely adore Monique. I think that she has a great speaking gift. And one of the things that she does a really good job at, in my opinion, is defining what biblical unity looks like. As Christians, how should we look at this? How can we uplift Jesus and the gospel after all is said and done. I really, really hope that this interview makes your brain hurt because it made my brain hurt in a good way. I think those are the best interviews and books to read. <laughs> I have a feeling this will not be the last that you guys see of the Monique-Melissa duo. Me and Monique have similar personalities and we'll probably end up collabing at some point in the future again, I'm, I'm positive. And just a fun fact, me and Monique actually met each other a few years ago in 2020 at Cross-Examine Instructor Academy. She was one of the students there, I was one of the students there, and that's where her and I got to know each other. And I'm glad that I finally tricked her into coming onto my channel. So I really hope that you guys get a lot out of this conversation. I know that I did. <laughs> hey guys, I am really excited to have this guest on today. I have my good friend, Monique Dusan. Uh, some of you might've heard of her. I have shared her channel uh, before. I've talked about her and my friend Krista as well, her ministry partner. And I have her on today to talk about something that I have been learning about for the last few years. And some of you, if not most of you, have heard about critical race theory. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Monique, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks yeah. so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here and to talk with you and laugh with you. My goodness, we have already had like a little session beforehand. Yeah. This is 40 minutes. We, yes. we, it's been 40 minutes that we have just been laughing, talking uh, sharing and we praying all these things, uh, before this interview guys. And I, I just, I, I, I admire Monique so much, not just for what she, you know, her, her relationship with Jesus, but also that she, she doesn't stand for this stuff. And I, I like that. I like the no nonsense attitude, uh, with this. So if you haven't checked her out, uh, I will leave in the description of this video, links to where you can find resources uh, more than and beyond of what we'll cover here in this interview. But first, before we get started for anything, uh, I want you to tell my viewers who you are. What is this about? How did this all get started? And I think that will give us a really good start for the topic and what we'll get into today. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. My goodness. Yeah. Um, I am Monique Dusan, and I am the co-founder of the Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, my partner is Krista Bontrager, and together we founded the Center for Biblical Unity, or CFBU, in um, February of 2020 due to conversations we were having about race, justice, and unity. And we could not really agree or come to a common ground on race, justice, and unity. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't come to a common ground on it because she was coming from an extremely biblical position, a historical 
historically biblical position. Like what did the early church think about race or ethnicity and unity? I was coming at the conversation from a critical race theory perspective. Mm -hmm. And so once I was able to realize like, oh, you're actually talking about something that is not in alignment with what I'm talking about. And she, when she noticed the same thing, we began to thread through, well, what is true and what's not? Mm-hmm. And as we sifted through what is true, what is cultural, what is opinion, mm-hmm. what is data, I began to shift my views. Mm-hmm. And I realized that critical race theory, the social justice narrative and all of that will never get us as Christians to a true place of unity mm-hmm. um, that only Jesus, like having a foundation of Jesus will get us to true unity mm-hmm. and that unity is provided for us ontologically, supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the question we should be asking as believers is how do we walk out the unity that's already been provided for us when we're believers? Mm-hmm. Um and CFBU was really um, formed in huge, a huge aspect of CFBU was meant to help answer that question for other believers. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of the coin was that I saw at the end of 2019 and early 2020 and throughout, you know, the Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd um, situation killings. What I saw was this demonization of white people, mm-hmm. that all white people were racist, all white people were, you know, evil, all white people were, you know, fill in the blank. And I said, well, you know, as a Christian, I can speak out on behalf of my white brothers and sisters. And that is actually all that I thought I would be doing for a very short season. Mm-hmm. I thought that I would use my voice to say, hey, look, we're brothers and sisters. And the same way I would stand up for my, you know, biological family, I'm going to stand up for my spiritual family. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the ways in which I can do that is by reminding believers that we have a unity that's already been provided for us. Mm -hmm. Now, the Lord has taken the Center for Biblical Unity in all manner of different directions since then. you know, understanding that this call for unity is truly to every believer. There isn't a a ethnicity out there that um, does not have a responsibility for maintaining unity. But then it also dives deeper into some of the other critical social theories and really looking to empower believers to understand what's coming up in culture Mm -hmm. and how do we safeguard or protect the church? How do we protect our kids? How do we protect those who might be sitting in the pews next to us from some of the ideologies? How do we safeguard Mm -hmm. our pulpits from being infiltrated by the critical social theories? So that's a little bit about, you know, CFVU, about me. I'm from Los Angeles. I am the oldest of four kids. Um, And yeah, lived in South Africa for four and a half years doing mission work in Cape Town and just outside of Cape Town. And aside from that, I really appreciate dance and... You long know, walks on the beach. little bio. Long yeah. walks on the yeah, I do love a long walk on the beach. Yes. <laughs> do you like coffee though or tea? That's the real question. Or pineapple on your pizza. 
I oh yes, I like pineapple on my pizza. Oh my! And if you don't, then I'm going to need everyone here to get their life right with the Lord. I'm gluten free, so I have to have gluten free cake. But like, if we could have unity around cake, like if we could form like the cake tribe. Oh dear! I am all about forming like the cake tribe. That is a cult I would join. I'm just saying. Yeah, I love you. Let me stop. Somebody's (laughs) gonna come. Somebody's gonna come for us, girl. Yeah. So thank you, thank you for all that with your background. And so this is really interesting because I've kind of binged watching a lot of your guys's videos on your channel at Lisa Childers you were on her channel in fact that was the first time I that was kind of a pivotal moment in my life personally and here's why I have two daughters both of them are white my husband is is white we kind of have this mixed family in that sense so I never thought anything of this growing up it was we 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 respected the historical you know plight of black people. We, I remember being taught about slavery. I remember being taught about the, the horrible hardships of that time. Uh, the uh, civil rights movement, uh, all these things. I grew up uh, learning this, right? And so, and then all of a sudden you're growing up in this country where racial division doesn't seem like that anymore. There was just this non-issue of, of race during this this me growing up and even into my adult years. With that being said, I never heard of critical race theory. I never even heard of this before growing up until uh, first I saw the video with you and Elisa. And I'm like, oh, what is this? This is interesting. Didn't watch it yet at that point. It was around 2019, 2020, when all the Black Lives Matter stuff started coming out with George Floyd and many other things that all of a sudden I started watching and seeing this this revolution, if you will, happen. And it it confused me deeply. I didn't know what this was. But I remember looking at all this, this just shift in our country of these things. And I'm like, I can't believe this. What is happening? That confusion continued all these years. And I've been trying to pick up all this information to research. All that being said, with my viewers, with people that may not even understand what critical race theory is or what critical theory is. Could you define what that is while at the same time, maybe helping us explain how all of a sudden it has boomed in our culture? Yeah, good question. Okay, so looking at a definition of critical race theory, when I am asked to define critical race theory, one of the things that I always want to do is I want to define critical race theory as those who are proponents of the movement. Mm -hmm. I don't want to create a straw man. I don't want to define it by, you know, my own terms. So I look at this book here. It's called Critical Race Theory, um, An Introduction. And it's Mm -hmm. by Jean Stefancic and um, Richard Delgado. They're a husband Mm -hmm. and wife Mm -hmm. pair. And they are some of the original writers of critical race theory, along with Kimberly Crenshaw and Mari Matsuda, Derek Bell. And um, there, gosh, I think there's like two others. But right when you open the book, if you're on page three, the title of this section says, what is critical race theory, right? There it says, what is critical race theory? And when you read the first sentence, it says, The critical race theory movement Mm. is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. 
And then it goes down and it kind of threads out what that what that means and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But what's important for us to understand about critical race theory is that critical race theory is a movement. It is meant to move and to transform society. How does it do this? Well, it does that by looking at the relationship dynamics between race and racism mm-hmm. from the undergirding or the foundational premise of power and power dynamics. Mm -hmm. So it's looking to study and transform the relationship among race, racism, and power. And who are the people who are doing this? It is scholars and activists. And so why do we see a lot of these, um, you know, conversations happening first in academia? Well, it's the academics who are first studying the relationship, the relationship between the, you know, race and racism and power dynamics. And then it, you know, seeps down from academia into the popular culture. But on just a lay level, you know, what does this mean when um when we're looking out into just the broader culture? What is what does this, you know, more academic definition mean for me personally? Mm-hmm. Well, it means that what we see in our culture currently is the questioning of everything related to race, racism, and power. Part of critical race theory automatically assumes that there are power dynamics continuously at play and that those power dynamics are constantly either upholding a group of people or oppressing a group of people. Mm -hmm. Right now, when we're looking at the conversation of race, critical race theory would say that those who are being upheld would be those who are... um, in positions of power. So white people, social power, economic power, and things like that. Who are the majority? It would be white people. Mm -hmm. Who are those who are then being oppressed? Who are those who are being quote unquote marginalized? Well, it would be your minorities. Mm -hmm. Anyone who does not have social power, anyone who um, does not have um, power as far as wealth or economic power, those would be the the people or the groups that we would consider marginalized. And so critical race theory is just an investigation into culture. A lot of people say it's just a, it's an academic framework. I do agree. It is an academic framework to study and to investigate um, where we need to transform the dynamics between race, racism, and power. Now, it's important to understand that critical race theory came out of critical legal studies. Mm -hmm. Critical legal studies formed in the 70s really looked at um, how has or has not um, culture shifted after the civil rights movement? Where are we still seeing issues of race and racism um, happening in regards to the law and legal structures? Are things, um, you know, more fair? Are we seeing equal numbers in regards to crime or um, judicial statistics? So who's going to jail and for what and for what amount of time? Critical race theory takes that a step further and really threads through beyond the aspect of law, but into all the parts of society. Where is race and racism happening and how is it being upheld through power dynamics? Does that make sense? It it does. Yes. And the next question, a springboard question onto that is not, we see this in everyday life where we have people saying that a black person cannot be racist to a white person just because of the color of her skin. She has this oppressor label. These are really 
odd to me. Like, even Mm -hmm. if I weren't a Christian, I would look at that and think that's just not right. Mm -hmm. There's something logically uh, incompatible about this. So I'm wondering if you can expand more because the critical race theory is just part of the 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 puzzle you have critical theory in general which we see oppressor versus oppressed all throughout society when it comes to race gender queer uh people like lgbtq plus members we have queer theory we have all these things across society which leads me into asking about that this every time i i've researched this conversation and listened to a podcast or whatever it is, Marxism gets brought up, which if anybody knows much about Marxism and socialism and things like that makes sense because a lot of the us versus them mentality and that aspect goes back to that. I'm wondering if you could talk more about that, about the core of those ideologies. Yes. So I just said that critical race theory is an academic framework, Mm -hmm. which I do completely believe that it is. And I also believe that this framework operates as a worldview. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at a worldview, a worldview is answering some very fundamental questions, very important questions. Um, What does it mean to be a good person? Mm-hmm. Um, for us as Christians, how are we saved? And, and, you know, not Christian Christians don't just, you know, consider that question. There are other religions that consider this question as well. What is, you know, the afterlife or things like that. But critical race theory answers some very heavy questions. Now, as a worldview, what are the, the foundational tenets of this worldview? Well, critical race theory is founded on, and this is where you get this term cultural Marxism, it's actually founded on a lot of the Marxist principles. Mm -hmm. So if we go back about a hundred years, 1923, 25, we get a group of thinkers who founded the Frankfurt School in Germany. This group of thinkers were Marxian in thought. They were asking the question of, well, why didn't the working class revolt? Where potentially did Marx go wrong in his thinking regarding economics and regarding the working class that would keep people in their same position, even if it was possible for them to revolt? Mm-hmm. Think about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Mm-hmm. Why why hasn't you know the working class revolted or you know rioted or you know whatever? So they began to um dig into an endeavor called critical theory, where they're taking a critical look. They're taking a look um, to question everything about our current cultural norms. They're looking deeply um, to be able to say, hey, this is the problem and this is the solution to the problem. Fast forward a couple of years, you have... um, Nazism and this group of thinkers flees to the United States. They flee to the United States and um, find refuge here. And they continue during doing their studies and their work here. And critical theory is, I don't want to say unleashed. You know, I feel like that that's a very, you know, big way to talk about it. But critical theory is allowed to seep into academia here. Mm -hmm. So much so that Herbert Marcuse, and this is now flat, um, 
going fast forward, you know, quite a few decades, but Herbert Marcuse was able to mentor Angela Davis. Herbert Marcuse was a pivotal role in the Frankfurt School. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, you know, a leading voice from the Frankfurt School, from the critical theory ideology. Now, where does Angela Davis fit into this? Angela Davis was a Black activist. She's still, she's still alive, so she is a Black activist who was highly influential in the defunding the police movement from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Angela Davis was a Black, or is a Black activist who had a ton of issues um, regarding like, uh, gosh, and I'm kind of blanking on exactly what happened, but there was like a a shooting in a courtroom and there was questions about, um, you know, did she assist with getting the guns to the people who held up the courtroom and killed the judge and, you know, all those kind of things. Or um, I don't remember if it was the judge who was killed or one of the, you know, like guards, but there was, you know, people killed. She ran for vice president of the communist party twice. Um, Angela Davis is a a central figure when we're looking at Black history and when we're looking at Black activism. Hmm. But she became that activist through the mentorship and guidance of Herbert Marcuse. Hmm. Now, and this is important in a, in a kind of a roundabout way. It's important to understand that the the socialist mentality, this um, Marxian mentality of the us and the them, the oppressed and the oppressor, is played out directly in Davis's um, kind of critique of society and her thoughts on why we should basically get rid of police, why we should defund the police. That conversation of defunding the police happened in the 70s. Look at us today in 2022. Mm -hmm. We're still having this conversation of defunding the police because of power dynamics. Mm -hmm. So when people say, you know, this this is cultural Marxism, what they're actually saying is that this is a Marxian thought process. Mm-hmm. that has now been applied to the larger culture overall. This isn't just sitting in the realm of economics. This is sitting broadly in culture. And so when we look at who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors, it's no longer just the rich and the poor. It is the black and the white. Blacks are oppressed, whites are oppressors. It is the young and the old or the young and the maybe not necessarily old, but, you know, that middle sector that, you know, 25 to 59, you know, kind of age where, you know, the the elderly are considered more of an oppressed people and the young are considered an oppressed people. This is why we need to protect our kids. Or you'll hear this kind of language coming from those in um, in certain schools. Well, it's our job to protect our kids, to create a safe space for our kids where our kids can, you know, say what's true for them. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that, the protection of the child is no longer happening within the home, but it's happening in this zone of safety at school because children are considered an oppressed people. Hmm. But who are the oppressors if the child is oppressed? Well, it would be adults. It would be anyone who does not um, associate as being an ally. Hmm. When we think of, um, you know, 
the in terms of I don't tend to use the word gender, but I know that that's the word that's you know popular in culture right now. When we think of gender and gender ideology, well, who would then be the oppressed and who are the oppressors? Well, the oppressed would be anyone who identifies as gender queer or anywhere along the spectrum of the LGBTQ plus, you know, and now it goes into two spirit and you know all of these other things. Who would be the oppressors? Anyone who cisgender. identifies as cisgender. Yeah. When you think of male and female, who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors? Men, women. In religion, who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors? Oppressors are Christians, you're Protestant Christians. Who are the oppressed? Anyone who identifies as a religious minority. Mm-hmm. So think Buddhist, Jew, um, Muslim, Muslim, you know, anyone who identifies as a religious minority is now categorically oppressed by the majority group. And so cultural Marxism comes into play because it's just this idea of um, Marxist thought being applied to the larger culture. It's not simply, you know, well, everybody here identifies as a Marxist mm-hmm. because I think there are a lot of people who would say, no, I don't identify as a Marxist. Yeah. And they are participating in a way that upholds a lot of Marxist thinking. Yeah. Well, yeah, you broke that down really well with the history. I like it when dots connect to see how we got to where we're at. Uh, we mentioned Black Lives Matter at the beginning of the conversation. I think both of us did. Uh, coming onto the scene around 2019, 2020. They've been around for a while, but again, most people never heard of this movement having the type of momentum that it had until 2020, around that time. And the things that they stood for and the things that they were saying, again, at the time, I found just radical and, and wrong. Again, even if I wasn't a Christian, it would have just been shocking to me, but everybody's jumping on board. Everybody is saying, no, I don't, you know, like microaggressions, social justice, equity, inclusion, all these things, defund the police, all, um, all these things were behind that movement. I'm wondering if you could speak about those terms and about how, if any, Black Lives Matter played into that. And maybe if you can tell us why they're off the map now, all of a sudden, Girl, they off the map because they was crooked. But you know what? <laughs> Let me start at the beginning. Um, okay, so Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Do I think Black Lives Matter? Yes, Obviously. I do. I I really do. I don't know if anybody here can, doesn't see me or, you know, if this is going to go out to just podcast land. It's, if people don't know, I am Black. Okay, I bear Black skin. Let's just be honest. So yes, I think that Black lives matter. I have Black brother, Black sisters, Black parent, like Black friends. Black lives do matter. And yet this organization is crooked mm-hmm. and yeah. they it, it's divisive mm-hmm. um, it, and it does not stand for Black life. Now, for the person who would be like, well, she racist. She don't think that all lives matter and she don't care about the white life. Calm down. Calm down. Okay. Okay. I'm a historically biblical Christian. And so in saying that, I believe that black lives matter. I am just saying that I do see the value in black life the same way that I see the value in a life that does not have as much melanin as I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Um, Now, in regards to black lives matter, the the movement of black lives matter, um, the 
um, the founders themselves will tell you that they are trained Marxists. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just, you know, curve any kind of um, suspicion. Yeah. Let's curb the the question. No, they are trained Marxists. They are proud of it. In addition to that, um, I know Patrice Cullors for sure is into like African spiritualism. Mm-hmm. And so when people do the, you know, hashtag say the name and yeah. all that, that is some conjuring up demonic, yeah. all kind of, you know, and, and I've seen That's her scary. in an interview say, you know, we we draw upon their strength. The devil is a lie, honey. I don't draw upon that. Uh-uh. Not me, not me. <laughs> no, you can mm-hmm. take that somewhere. Uh-uh. Um, And so understanding what the organization is for, the organization is for the promotion of the black trans. Mm. That is, and I, they scrub their website. I think I still actually have um, like screenshots of their website. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it's about the, the promotion of the black trans. It is about the, the tearing down of the black nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Black lives matter. Don't care about my little life. If I am killed on the street of South Central Los Angeles, Flint, Michigan, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Birmingham, Dallas, they're not, you're not going to see no kind of parade. Nobody's going to riot. And I mean, if I'm killed at the hands of another black person, they're not, they're not concerned about my life. They're not concerned about the everyday person, black person who dies unless they're killed by a white person. Mm-hmm. Most usually a black, I mean, a white cop. They're not in front of the abortion clinic protesting for the black lives, for the, you know, hundreds of thousands of black babies who are murdered. No, this is about, if I'm blunt, making white people feel bad yeah. and collecting white dollars. Isn't and white, don't they call that like white guilt? Yeah, it is. It's about white white guilt. Yeah. And they've done it very well. Mm-hmm. They have managed to take the market um, on st- saying that they're for something that they're really not for. Mm-hmm. But they've gotten so much buy-in. Mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, like what a, a, a catchy phrase. To me, it's genius. It is. Because who who would say, well, Black Lives don't matter? It Nobody's is. jumping on that train. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That would just be a, a an, like a wrong train to jump on. Mm-hmm. Because as believers, we do understand that life matters. Mm-hmm. But what they do with that is they say, well, if you do not agree, then you're racist. Yes. This is very much the move yeah. of Ibram Kendi. Uh-huh. Ibram Kendi is like, if you are not anti-racist, you are racist. racist. There yeah. is no middle ground. Mm-hmm. This And this is where I feel like so many believers now fall prey. Yes. Because who wants to be a racist? Exactly. Who wants to be called, a, who wants to be called, you know, a whatever? Yep. Yeah, yep. sometimes you don't have to take that name call, boo. <laughs> you might have to and say, well, I'm gonna have to sort it out with the Lord yeah. because I what I can't do is now step over into sin. What yeah. I can't do is say, well, if I'm gonna stand for black life, then that means that I also am, you know, just inherently now gonna have to stand for the black trans life and the black abortion. And and so at some point, can we just all agree that we're we'll be advocating for sin? Mm-hmm. Yes this is what it is. But people want to tiptoe and dance around that fact. No, Black Lives Matter is not the organization that is 
promoting the the welfare of black life Mm -hmm. they're just angry when a black person gets killed by a white person Mm -hmm. even if that killing is just you know we i i don't think we thread through enough um the conversation of like is there ever biblically a time where a killing is just Mm. You know, and so how do we how do we have that conversation, regardless of skin color? Mm-hmm. When we when we elevate skin color so high that now there this there's a group of people who can do nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an injustice. Yeah. It's an injustice not to hold me accountable for my actions simply because I bear black skin. Yeah. But I'll hold you doubly accountable mm-hmm. for your actions. So yeah, and then Black Lives Matter, You, the other part of your question was what happened to them? Well, I think earlier this year, it was discovered that a couple of the people in the organization had like, you know, taken money and bought houses. Yeah. yeah. And now where are they? Yeah. You know, and what what is irritating to me is that there were so many pastors, as I've traveled the country, so many churches with these huge banners across them, Black Lives Matter, and pastors who would get up on a Sunday morning and say, if you don't support Black Lives Matter, then, you know, are you a Christian? Or we are, we're going to take up a special collection for Black Lives Matter. Where did that money go to support mm-hmm. Black life? Mm-hmm. Yep. Where? Mm-hmm. But- this is what we're hearing from our leadership, mm-hmm. which makes me ask a whole nother, you know, a whole other set of questions about our leadership within the church, mm-hmm. but that's not for today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And see, that's the thing that's where even I got confused. I remember when everybody was turning their uh, profile pictures into, it was like a black circle or something like the yeah, black girl, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Post your black square. And post your black square and everybody was hammering into you. If you do not, you know, jump on this bandwagon, you are a racist. Yes. White silence is violence. Yes. I remember all that. And I remember Mm -hmm. just being like, oh, like what is happening? Because this is why, to your point, because there was a lot of Christian leaders that I think were confused as well. And they didn't want to seem... Um, it's like they had to act right then. And I think see, a lot of them did it foolishly, honestly. Here's the thing. Here mm. is the thing. We just gonna have to break it all the way down. Mm. <laughs> Look, if you are a leader and you are confused before you open your mouth to say anything, you need to do your due diligence yeah. and research. That is a biblical position. Mm-hmm. That is, that's the biblical position. We don't just run with the mob. Mm-hmm. read the old testament no i'm not saying we're saved by the old testament but we can glean wisdom on how we should participate yeah. today as leaders and so yes so we glean wisdom mm-hmm. from the old testament the old testament don't run just don't just run with the mob where is your evidence mm-hmm. we do things based on evidence and that the, the we, social pressure was intense and it was I, I, not mm-hmm. cool like say nothing. no like just say nothing then like no yeah or, like, or you say i am going to do my due diligence as the man of god yeah. and i am going to research this and when i have found it in the scriptures i will present to you what our plan of action is going to be but i will not be made to feel as if i have to rush into judgment yeah. this is where our error lies because we see the pressures of culture culture going cult culture is going to cult they are going to put pressure on one another but we are people of god we are people of the book 
Yes, as long as we are people of God, people of the book, we must respond accordingly. I don't respond because culture is pushing me and telling me. Mm -hmm. But that's where we've gotten. And I think, and this is not a word from the Lord. I didn't have no prophetic knowledge. I'm just going to say, I think it would do us well to take a step back, to kind of reevaluate, kind of huddle together. Come, let, come on, let's bring the family in yes. and reassess. Yeah. Because there, there's a lot of, well, if you don't do this and are you a really, I've heard, I heard a pastor say, if you don't, um, if you can't see the racism, are you even a Christian? Do you even have a soul? That was his words. Do you even uh, have a soul? Here's the irony, Monique. Tell me if you agree with this. Cause I'm watching, I'm watching all this like happen over the, this is why I've waited so long to, t- to cover this topic. It's just. Okay, well, what is it? How does it work? How is this in our lives? It's in our face. This played another part in me homeschooling, all this stuff. There is actual racism, right? And so like if there's if there is an issue, in other words, if there are people that actually, you know, have experienced racism, I think this completely derails the actual problems then. Because what they're not taking into account, I believe, is, you know, there's like this dystopian in their mind where it's just like, okay, we can have the perfect society um, based on these principles. Um, but I think what they're forgetting is is the human nature uh, of it all. Like, you better preach. Oh, go ahead. Go. I'm serious. Like, so I, I have some things. To say. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me about, oh yeah, you already know, you probably already know what I'm getting at then because- like even as, an, even as a woman, I, I've experienced things as a woman that are unfair just because I'm a woman, right? Um, and I get that. That's wrong. And we need to deal with that. However, the toxic feminism that we have does not fix that very real problem. I see the same thing with um, with, with the Black community. Like there's issues. But nobody's looking at those anymore because, ooh, look at this, inclusion, equity. Ah, (laughs) you know, like, don't look behind the curtain. Yeah, what are your thoughts on this? I know you have a lot to say on that. Girl, okay, so I, (laughs) because of this, um, I started a whole new podcast called Off Code. Oh, I know. Is this something you've you've announced? It's, we're like 12 episodes in, so it's about three months old. Or, yeah three, four months old. Um, and I do it with, I do it with my podcast partner, Kevin Briggins. Yeah. We just, we go hard. Like we just look at what are the issues in the black community? Because you can't blame everything on whiteness. You can't, you can't blame black abortion on whiteness. Mm -hmm. You can't blame, um, you know, black unwed pregnancy on whiteness. Whiteness don't make you lonely, boo. Like (laughs) we, we have, there are things we need to talk about, but Starting with, um, you know, this this worldview or ideology creating this utopia. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm saying about um, critical theory answering worldview questions. How am I a good person? How can I be saved? What happens? Um, you know, how do we create a, a, a you know a good or perfect society? Mm-hmm. Well, for the Christian, for the believer, we understand that. That perfect society does not happen until heaven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't it happen until heaven? Because Monique is here. Boo. Monique will ruin your stuff. Like, let's just be honest. I am the reason why we can't have nice things. Sin (laughs) impacts 
our world. Sin is the reason why there is racism. I am not a racism denier. Mm -hmm. And so much so that I actually believe that racism will be here forever Mm -hmm. because racism is a sin. It's the sin of partiality. Mm -hmm. Partiality mixed with some hatred, some slander, you know, got got your little concoction Mm -hmm. going on. But that's really what it what racism boils down to this ethnic partiality mm-hmm. or a partiality based on skin color or region and all of that so how do we do away with ethnic partiality well one version of how do we do away with this one worldview is to read the books, to post your black square, to be an ally, to riot and protest, Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, stand with the margin, to do all of these things. And according to people like Kendi or Robin DiAngelo, um, the author of White Fragility, Mm -hmm. doing these things will get us to a place of like anti-racism and to a place where society is more equitable. And But you have to continue to do these things. Yeah. And the minute one person mess up, yes. hi, that's going to be me. <laughs> then what? We got to start all the way back over again. It's like a That's weird, a mess. It's a weird workspace religion. And, you it, know, and this is what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it is a worldview. It is a religion. It's how I operate and see the world. Christianity, on the other hand, understands and says, well, okay, how how do we get to a better place and a better society? Well, I understand that through a relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. and the power of the Holy Spirit, my heart is changed. Mm-hmm. I used to be racist. Like, like, and I mean, if you really go through all my thoughts in the, in the day. Like there are many places where I still have to ask the Holy spirit, like, please continue to do the work in my heart. But we understand it. It starts with a personal relationship with Jesus. And as people encounter Jesus, they are changed and their lives are changed. And that extends into the family and into society. We understand that that perfect society comes when heaven is here. That is what the anti-racist, um, propose this is this is what they claim will happen when you do all of these works i know that i cannot be saved through work mm-hmm. and that all of my work is as filthy rags i understand that aside from christ working in me mm-hmm. nothing good will happen mm-hmm. and so it, it's a definite difference in worldview but it comes with its own canon mm-hmm. read look at all the books that you have to read mm-hmm. but then you also have christianity and we have a book that uh-huh. we read. Um, it, it, um, this worldview over here, the worldview of critical theory, tells me how to be a good person. Yeah, Christianity also tells me how should I be a good person. One will tell you what what is your righteousness based on. Mm-hmm. Christianity will also answer that question: What is my righteousness based on? Mm-hmm. And what happens if you don't mm-hmm. do these things? They. It, each one answers these questions. Unfortunately, it's vastly different. Mm-hmm. And the the idea of sin cannot be covered 
through the worldview of critical theory. Mm -hmm. Sin is only covered through the worldview of Christianity. I I just wanted to really hit on your point to really break it down for people that yes, this worldview does offer the promise of a utopia. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it is a very short-sighted promise. And I know people will say, no, it doesn't do that. And you can't compare it to Christianity and blah, blah, blah. And I say, "Mm, I disagree. Mm-hmm. I do believe that critical the critical theories answer these questions. And this is why Christian critical theorists especially push back so hard on it. Mm-hmm. Because to acknowledge that these questions are being answered would directly put critical theory as a worldview competitor to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And then we have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, that that all makes perfect sense. And the there's always been a burning question that I've always wondered seeing all this because you know this is what Greg would say Greg Kokel he's a he's a good friend of both of ours and if you were to carry this out to its logical conclusion what is then the end game I mean if if it's oppressed versus oppressor mm-hmm. and that is based on numbers imagine for a second if you will if we flipped it then is it ever possible that black people could be oppressors of white people. Is that something in that worldview that would ever cross their mind? Like imagine for a second, if all of a sudden the population of of black Americans grew exponentially and surpassed those of white Americans, well then guess what? The white people are then a minority. Like what is the end game? Like what, what does this mean? Um, if you were to carry it out and then not only that, the end game that they're wanting, when will it ever be enough? And that's really what I I can't stop. That's what I end with. It's a burning question. I'm like, what is their end game? When when will this? When will it ever be enough for you guys to to see? Okay, now we can stop uh, this whole oppression versus oppressor game. The truth is, is that it seems like it can never end because somebody has to be in one of those categories based on this philosophy, like to based yes. on this worldview. So. That's what I'm saying. Like, you see where this is where my brain goes? Or I'm like, when is what is the end game? I'm trying to think about that. And I don't get how anybody, you have brilliant people who believe this that are way smarter than me. And I don't get how they don't see that. And a part of it, I think, has everything to do with what you just said. When you know the story of reality, when you look at the Christian worldview and you look at these puzzle pieces and you you bring them out to their logical conclusion, Christianity like historical Christianity, you're talking about like what the Bible actually teaches, not, you know, this, this other, you know, caricature of Christianity. I'm talking about the, uh, Yahweh becoming a a man, you know, and, and, be, and, and saving mankind, you know, the sin exists. What is this? What is this story that it makes sense? It is the one that fits reality the best. And that's why it's something that we can tangibly use to make sense of the situation. Without that, all of a sudden, there's all these holes. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that, on what I just said? What do you think? So playing something all the way out to its logical conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, I think that there are a number of ways to to be able to look at that. Personally, and I'm not saying that, you know, any critical theorist would say this, but personally, I believe that violence would be the logical conclusion, like playing things all the way out to their their end. When when will things be enough? Um, I think that we'll if if we stay on this trajectory, um 
violence, and I think we've already seen violence, um, would be the logical conclusion. I think that looking at, gosh, looking at the idea of, you know, when when this goes all the way to the end, where will we be? I think the critical theorists would say that we will be at a place of equity, we'll be at a place of fairness. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, to get to equity, it's kind of like Kendi says, mm-hmm. you know, in order to... Um, you know, get rid of racism. Some, and he doesn't, I'm not quoting him, but this mm-hmm. is kind of just the gist of it. In order to get rid of racism um, or to be able to get to like something that is more racially equitable, you might have to participate in racism, basically. So in order for us to bring Black people to a place um, of of wealth equality with white people, we might have to participate with white people in a way that um, is despairing in regards to wealth or that is not fair in regards to wealth. So it is okay when we look at the conversation of equity Mm -hmm. and the logical conclusion, part of that logical conclusion would be that we would, in order to bring up a minority group, we would hold back another group for a period of time in order to be able to make things equal or equitable for all parties involved. Mm -hmm. I think that that is going to cause a lot of chaos and trouble, actually. Um, The logical conclusion for, um, gosh, things in in the, I would say the more immediate future Mm -hmm. is like a unequal access to resources or give or an unfair, you know, access to resources. So giving some students additional resources and withholding resources from other students. I think it is, um, you know, watching, watching our current culture uplift one group of of people and yet actively put down another group of people. Yeah. But in the end, I wonder if this will be something like I saw in in South Africa or um, in Zimbabwe with land redistribution, Mm. um, wealth redistribution. That's something that's constantly on the on the table, constantly in conversation. How do we redistribute wealth? The goal is to transform a society. And we read that right out of this book. What does it look like to transform a society where those in power don't have that power, but everything is equal across the board or equitable across the board? Mm-hmm. So we're gonna we're gonna see I suspect more conversations of power dynamics and how do we shift the power from one group of people to another group of people because this group of people has constantly been marginalized according to you know the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. This group of people is constantly marginalized, has never had any power, has always been oppressed. And with that, I think we'll we'll see things like like I already have professors not receiving tenure in universities, mm-hmm. white professors, mm-hmm. um, all the way to you know n- hiring and job promotions, and yeah. um, you know just what does this look like? I think Coke had it. He like the Coca Cola Corporation be less white. Uh, they they nailed it. They really nailed what I think the future really looks like of, you know, what, what's the end game? Well, the end game is to be less white because white is oppressive. And when we get into like whiteness ideology and um, like whiteness theory and all of that, what whiteness means, people will be encouraged to be less white. You mentioned 
like whiteness, you know, be less white, all this. Can you please help me understand the mindset behind how they don't think that's racist? Because if I were to turn that around and be like, be less black, right? Oh, girl, I can't. I cannot. Okay. Here I am. That makes sense. Because I do not get how that is not the most racist thing. And that's where the whole thing is, is that if you're told and taught, like, and you're, you're it seems to be anyway, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, in this mind frame, you can't be racist if you're a person of color. You you can't be. And then there's this weird, uh, I, I was uh, talking to a friend about this. Her husband is Asian and uh, like Chinese Asian. He uh, works very hard, right? So they have this really, this different work ethic. And it's almost like they're not as oppressed as black people. So it's like, yeah, you don't count. You're You're too white because you do white things. You follow more of the white mold when it comes to, you know, logic or working hard. And I'm like, how are those things white? It is, make this make sense for me, please. Honey, <laughs> there is only so much I can do. When we are talking Amen. about whiteness, mm-hmm. we, most people are talking about a white Western European way of thinking, of doing things. So like um, a cultural thing. Yes. So whiteness on time. To, to that, to that culture. Okay. Yes. All right. So being on time now, I don't know, maybe in the history of black people, ain't nobody ever aspired to be on time. <laughs> I, I don't think so, but you know, that kind of is what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, being respectful, respecting authority. I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you saw the um, infographic from the Smithsonian, the African-American museum of, like oh, I've seen a lot of things. Are, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but it they they I think in 2020 released this whole whiteness pamphlet yeah. thing, brochure about like what whiteness is. And it it you know talks about celebrating certain holidays, Judeo-Christian holidays, oddly enough. Yeah. Um, being on time, respecting authority, um, kindness, I think was on there, like doing logic, you know, be I was just like what does this say about me? What do you think about me? Make yeah. it make sense. Yeah. But um, so this, this whiteness isn't necessarily talking about skin color. Now, that being said, there is a tenet within the critical race theory realm mm-hmm. called whiteness as property. And it looks at how white people can use their white skin in a way um, that I can't use my black skin. And so when people say, well, I am, I'm talking about whiteness as, you know, the, the framework or whiteness as the theory, I'm not talking about your white skin. This is why all white people can be racist or why black people can participate in whiteness because we're not looking at your skin color. I disagree. So it's semantics to them. It is. And a lot of this boils down to semantics, but I, I, I ardently disagree. That is garbage. It, it does. It it comes down oftentimes to skin color because of whiteness as property. Yeah. And well, so pretend for a second that I'm using blackness in the same way. Like, oh, I don't mean it by the color of your skin. I'm meaning mm-hmm. it by blackness as a culture. That would be just as racist. So yes. I don't know how that follows. That no, and no one wants to talk about the racism being spewed toward white people that would never fly if it never. was coming the other way. Ever. The, and so I'm going to take this into something called microaggressions. 
I wanted to ask micro- you about that. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so microaggressions being the normal every day, like just run of the mill, um, innocent, slight, um, like acts of racism. Okay. So it would be things like insults or harsh comments, things that I, as the person of color, understand to be racist because I understand racism because I'm a person of color. So it comes down to the special knowledge that I have as being a person of color that a white person would not have. A microaggression is not something that a person of color can do to a white person. Uh, microaggressions and I really want to just read like uh, the definition of microaggressions I had it here earlier oh here it is let me see it's the everyday verbal nonverbal, and environmental slights snubs or insults whether intentional or unintentional which communicate hostile derogatory or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership so what is this telling us First off the bat, it's telling me that a white person can never experience a microaggression because it only is based solely upon the marginalized group membership. It's the environmental slights, snubs, or insults. Okay, that that slight means that it is it's very subtle. Whether yeah. intentional or unintentional. So racism now happens intentionally or unintentionally. It happens whether you know you're doing it or whether you don't know you're doing it. What a terrible burden. Yes. This is a critical theory thing, right? Not just a critical race theory. This right? is it, this started out as a critical race theory okay. conversation of mar- microaggressions, but now what you see because critical race theory, think of okay, mm-hmm. pause. Think of critical theory as a train, okay, with many different cars. Critical theory is the driving engine. Okay, okay so all the other cars are propelled and move forward by critical theory. Well, what's the first car we see after critic after the critical theory engine? Well, we see critical legal studies. Uh-huh. Some would say disability theory, but I I'm looking like critical legal studies. Mm-hmm. Right after critical legal studies in the 70s, what do we see? We see critical race theory in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Right after critical race theory, what do we see? But LGBTQ plus theory. Mm-hmm. in the in or yeah i think it's lgbtq plus or feminist theory it's somewhere along that just stick with the train um somewhere in the like early 90s but you also get critical queer theory yeah. you get child studies fat studies ableist theory these are all cars on this very long train and so when you hear a a term like microaggressions or inclusivity. What you have to think is how is this connected to the larger group? Case in point, in 2020, we heard a lot of language about being inclusive mm-hmm. racially. How am I being an inclusive stand? How are we standing for inclusivity in my workplace? Making sure that we have representation. Mm-hmm. Cool. Nobody wants to leave people out. Like you, we just don't want to leave you out because you know you bear brown skin. I don't think that's cool. But here's the conversation. Here's the question: What does it mean when you adopt this narrative and this wording? Mm-hmm. What does it mean in the broader 
spectrum of ideas. Well, it also means that, well, I'm inclusive. So now I'm including my Black, Brown, BIPOC people. Great. And I also have to include my LGBTQ plus people. I also have to include the, the um, what do you call it? Religiously marginalized? Yeah. So what does this mean for your pulpit? What does this mean for your church? As you have your Black Lives Matter flag, you know, just blowing in the wind because we're an inclusive community. Well, that means that when the the two-spirit person who identifies, you know, on, on the queer spectrum comes to your church and, and says, well, I, I want to also be a pastor. Uh-huh. Because you're all inclusive, aren't you? Yeah. Or is it a lie? Or when the Muslim person or or the the religiously marginalized person, whatever their you know religious affiliation, comes and says, "Well, I want you know I want to be baptized in your church too," uh-huh. or I want to participate, or you know whatever, however that looks for them. Well, how can we say no? You got to compromise. It seems like because this is the whole point of, of Christianity is Jesus was exclusive. He made exclusive claims all the time. Mm-hmm. He is the way, the truth in life. I yes. am the gate. I am the narrow road. Hey, I'm over here. Most people are going to go this way, but uh, if you want life, come to me, I am the bread of life. All these exclusive statements mm-hmm. on purpose. So yes. then all of a sudden you're, you're forced with this, this dilemma of being seen by the culture as being in like uninclusive, intolerant, if you don't, you know, just have this big coexist sticker outside of your church. And then all of a sudden you're right. It, one thing leads to the other and you compromise one thing at a time. Hasn't that been the battle of, of I feel oh. like of Christians? Hasn't that always been how we've been seen? Always. I guess is a better way to always. say it. We've now, always been seen as the exclusive. Exactly. We are seen and known for being apart from the world. That's the whole point. Like, and yes. this is why I don't understand progressive Christians because it's like you you want to redefine Christianity and then identify yourself with a group that's known with being apart from the world. It's weird. It's like you you can't mesh these things together. You're redefining them. And so, and this is where progressive Christianity is a whole other topic because that's really what's happening is your, your <laughs> culture is culting. That's what culture does. I love that. Um, that's kind of what happens is that they, they've become in, intertwined with the culture because they want to be tolerant. They want to be inclusive. But then the logical conclusion with that is that you then have to keep riding that train. You mm-hmm. have to keep, uh, who was it? I was, I was, it was actually an interview with Elisa. We were talking about the book untamed and, uh, Glennon Doyle. She had to kind of go along with this as well. Like there are things because of her female whiteness that she has to conform to, with that crowd because she has become under it like that's her crew that's yes. her tribe so yes. even if she doesn't agree she has to go along with it and conform so yes. I, I think that's the price you pay when you join that train when you get on yes. that ride you can't get off yes. you're on so I'm like I'm not you can't that's why that's why the whole compromise thing it's a slow fade because mm-hmm. one thing leads to the other and you look back and you're like wow I'm so far from from Jesus I'm so far from from truth i'm over here in this postmodern relativistic mess and it's so hard to get out once you're in it seems 
Yes. And it, it, gosh, it is, you're, you're, you're so on point with it. Like it's so hard to untangle the spaghetti. Like you, you have to understand, this is why I encourage pastors to really dig deep before they make public statements, really understand the framework before you go and recommend a book for someone to read, to understand their whiteness. Um, because it's such a long train and by accepting one you're accepting all and people don't understand and they push back but i'm like no you really cannot say that you're going to be inclusive over here but you're not going to be inclusive over there that doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. and when culture comes knocking on your door they're going to demand their due here i have another question for you about microaggressions Mm -hmm. i okay beyonce all right. Here's one. Here's a good example. The, the, Ooh, I think I know where you're going with this. You know uh-huh. Okay. I think All I right. do. Because here's the thing is that here we are talking about, Oh, you, you're on this train. Now you've sold your soul to this. Like, this is what it is. And it's hard to get off because then you're going to be, you know, looked at as this, uh, uninclusive, intolerant person. So you better, you better abide by these rules. Beyonce woman, she's black woman, right? So here we are talking about intersectionality, whole other topic conversation. If you guys haven't heard of that, about that, I will, again, please check out the description because this is just the tip of the iceberg in this conversation today. But intersectionality is important. It's good stuff to know. It goes alongside. It's part of the train, right? It's part of the train. Um, yeah. The, I would say intersectionality is the links to the, oh, on the good, train. Great way it's to put the it. It's the link. Because, great yeah. Yeah. It's the link. It's what's holding the black person or the the BIPOC black indigenous people of color Mm -hmm. to the LGBTQ plus. Mm -hmm. It's the intersectionality or to the feminist. Mm -hmm. It's the LGBT. It's it's the the link spectrum. And now you have you you mentioned ableism, like all this stuff. It's not just race. It's 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 women. It's it's queer theory. It's all these little blah 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 blah. And so. Everybody's talking about Beyonce, about her album, all this stuff. I haven't personally listened to it uh, for obvious reasons. I mean, I think that there's lines you you got across there. But one of the things that I read that she got a lot of gruff for, which you probably already know I'm getting at, a few things she got a lot of gruff for uh, was that she used a what people would consider a racial, not a racial slur. It was a slur for what was it? Uh, uh, handicapped people, correct? Do you what know? Is she, yes, she said. Um, Bad. She, no. Spaz. I thought that was Lizzo who said spaz and yeah. got corrected for oh, it. Oh no, yeah. she got corrected too though. This shit for another yeah. thing. Uh-huh. And then uh Beyonce said something, maybe it was a different word, but she said something that is I mean, a lot of people use this this word mm-hmm. as in like casual conversation, but all of a sudden it was seen as a a slur uh against mm-hmm. handicapped people. I she had to ret- redact it. She had to take it out of her album. It's mm-hmm. like once you're in these rules, once you're under this uh d- this dominating worldview, you have to obey the rules and they change almost every day. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that? You said it. That's it. Like the rules change and you have to continue to play by the rules. And if you don't play by the rules, you get kicked out of the tribe. So this happened to Lizzo a couple months back. This also happened to Beyonce um, where there's um, a use or, or language that is used that actually is now derogatory toward another group of people. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot, you know, use this derogatory language. So you're going to have to fix it. And I, I, I 
suspect that a piece of power dynamic is also at play here because she's making tons of money just because she is her intersections are black female yes doesn't necessarily mean that she is without power completely and so to that degree she is also now seen as someone who is oppressing someone else down the train mm-hmm. in her use of language. And there, there's a whole investigation into how is language itself oppressive. Mm-hmm. And so Lizzo and um, Beyonce got called out mm-hmm. and they participated as they should mm-hmm. in, you know, changing the lyrics of their song. But you have to, you have to oblige you. You can't just say, well, no, I disagree mm-hmm. because you're now in this world. You're now playing along and, and being a part of the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the world of critical theory yeah, and playing that game and to, to step outside of that world has, you know, other punishments and implications and all of that. And the punishment comes swiftly. And I, like I said, I'm a little bit more studied on like gender ideology than critical race theory. But what's interesting is that they are, the 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 core of what makes it up that is exactly the same thing. Like mm-hmm. you have to have a press or you have to have a press. And that's, so another springboard question on this is that obviously um, somebody always has to be oppressed then for this worldview and framework to work. So here you have Beyonce, a black woman who can she be oppressing somebody that's handicapped by using a word? Like, is that an oppression that she's showing like a microaggression in other words? And that was my question is that, is it possible for somebody of color to show a microaggression to somebody that's on another link in the train? Like, can, would somebody have considered that a microaggression to somebody in the handicapped community? I would say, yes, I do believe that there can be like oppression toward an outside group or um, some kind of, of ism done toward another group. Um, But I don't know that people would say that Beyonce herself could necessarily, could could necessarily like oppress a white person. Oh yeah. She still remains in her oppressed category, Mm -hmm. even with all her millions of dollars, even, you know, like with the, the empire that she and um, Jay-Z have created, she's still considered an oppressed person by virtue of her skin color and um you know her sex this is why you get like a basketball player like i want to say it was lebron james who was like i don't feel safe going outside of my house and making all of these statements of oppression hmm. because of his skin color so it 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 becomes this this tricky this this tricky game of understanding well who is oppressed and money doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with it but it does because like it, it and it goes back and forth you tend to say um it's like pinning a what a cloud to yeah. a wall like, yeah, it, like it, it pinning a cloud yeah it you it it really does boil down to whites mm-hmm. it boils down to the fact that um as some would say, you know, black people can't be racist toward white people because any racist act that I did would not impact your life significantly. It wouldn't stop you from being able to get a job and things like that. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that that's an accusation that still needs to be proven. Mm-hmm. 
you know, black people can't create systems is um, another thing that people say. I don't know about that. I actually think that black people can create systems Mm -hmm. now and we can have that discussion, but to say that someone like Beyonce um, is incapable of participating in microaggressions. Well, I think that, you know, by the proof that's in the pudding, she got called out Mm -hmm. and said, Hey, look, you said this slur, this, you know, slight and intentional or unintentional based on their definition. You did this and you now need to correct it. She participated. Yeah. yeah, you need to repent. And she and she did. She, I think she made a public statement. She fixed the song. Same thing with Lizzo. And, you know, if that's how you participate, you're in culture, culture is going to cult and be crazy. Then that's what you do. Yeah. In the kingdom, though, I think there's a different way for us to participate with one another. Mm-hmm. So there's something that, that happens. And, you know, I say, hey, look, you know, this, you, you did this and, you know, this is my issue with it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we have a conversation. Maybe it's corrected. Maybe the, you you say, well, man, that brings me to a bigger understanding and things like that. You know, it wasn't my intention. Um, I, I don't hold you up to be crucified for it. Mm-hmm. The difference on this side is that if Beyonce wouldn't have changed that song, if Lizzo wouldn't have changed that song, the cancel community, mm-hmm. the cancel culture community would have, completely maybe not Beyonce so much but I do think Lizzo I don't think Lizzo's as big as Beyonce um would have come for her Mm -hmm. and so you have to oblige by these things Mm -hmm. in Christianity as we seek to um maintain unity according to Ephesians 4 Mm -hmm. I can continue to have a conversation with you even if you disagree I might say you know what Melissa you did this and that I really like that's not cool that that I see that as being racist and you might say I did completely disagree as my sister I'm gonna like strive with you I'm gonna continue to walk this journey with you and have conversations with you I'm gonna understand and listen to your heart as well I'm not just going to pin you as the racist as the the ableist as the whatever is that culture would say that you are so I don't know that's this I kind of see a difference in how yeah. Christians should approach some of the conversation versus how culture approaches a lot of the microaggression conversations I think also and I'll I'll end with this mm-hmm. micro assume that we know the heart of the person who is guilty. Mm-hmm. And as Christians, we seek for evidence. As Christians, I ask questions. Yeah. As Christians, I, we have conversations. I'm not just going to say, I know your heart. Mm-hmm. Again, I could have you on here for, for hours talking about this. This is a, a topic that you are very passionate about, obviously. Your whole ministry is based on biblical unity and looking at critical race theory. You have a whole curriculum that you guys developed about this as well, which again, look in the description guys to check out. Uh, I will ask one question ending with this, this whole uh, conversation, because that is what you do. Uh, You want to bring it back to what is the biblical way to look at unity. Um, Can you answer that for us? If if with all of this, um, and you might've probably we probably drips it in here or there throughout this whole conversation, but what does biblical unity look like? And can you leave my viewers with some resources that you would recommend about this topic? Yes. Gosh. So what does biblical unity look like? Biblical unity does not look like what culture is is trying to put forward. Like, no, we can tell you what it's not. (laughs) Let's just be honest. Um, Gosh. 
to me, biblical unity looks like having Christ as our foundation and understanding what and how we are instructed to participate with one another from there. So the first place that I go to is like um, John 1, John 1, 12, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, I look at John 17 and Jesus' prayer for our unity that he's already given us what we need for unity. Um, the glory that we need, that glory per, um, referring to or pertaining to the Holy Spirit. I jump over to Ephesians and I can read Ephesians 1 and 2 that talks about our adoption. Um, and it was to God's good pleasure to adopt us, um, that we are brothers and sisters, you know, as we read that we are heirs. Um, I can look at Ephesians 2 that says the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Mm-hmm. And, and I can see the language there. We don't see in scripture, this idea of race. We do see an idea of ethnicity and we see different ethnic groups, but the way that race is used today is not in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first things I would do in looking at what is biblical unity, I would say that biblical unity first acknowledges that there is one human race Mm -hmm. and that we treat each other according to the fact that there is one human race. In line with that, we see in the New Testament that you are either of the the line of Adam or you are of the line of Christ. You're either in Adam or you are in Christ. And once we are in Christ, this is where all of these scriptures that I just quoted actually pertain to us. Mm -hmm. How do we now live as family? What does it look like to be a unified force as a family? Mm -hmm. Well, when when I think about my physical family, I go hard for my physical family. Yeah, I didn't tell y'all my whole story, but like, like I, I fight for my family. Like I will go hard for my family. Are we willing to do the same and walk in that same level of unity and, and familial bond with our spiritual family? Mm-hmm. Well, when we look into Ephesians four, it tells us how we maintain our unity. Mm-hmm. How do we participate with one another in a way that continues the unity that we've been given? Mm-hmm. And so to me, um, biblically, when I, when I look into the word of God, you, Jesus Christ is the, the foundation for our unity. How am I standing upon the word of God, understanding what Jesus, who Jesus is, um, and who we are in relation to who he is, and then moving forward from there, one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that mean that because we are so bonded and we're so, you know, family oriented that we don't have hard conversations? No, Mm -hmm. no. We still call people out on their sin. We still say, hey, look, the way you go in it, that ain't going to lead you nowhere. And we do that even more so because you are my brother or my sister. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go hard for you. I'm going to, I'm going to say, you know, like when we're sitting in that DEI meeting at work and somebody decides they're going to call my sister off for being a racist, I'm going to raise my hand and be like, the devil is a lie. Oh, oh, Susan ain't no racist. Like that's my sister. I'm not going to let you just, you know, (laughs) berate her and and go for her like that. We wear the name of Christ follower. Mm -hmm. And as, as we wear that name, that is like our, our family name. And so we're unified in that first, we're unified in the historic Christian doctrine. So no, I'm not going to, I can't unify around a progressive doctrine. Mm-hmm. I can't unify around a sociological framework. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that there is nothing for us to investigate within society? No. Mm-hmm. 
No. Can we look at systems and structures and, and see if there are any problems? Yes, we can. I'm, I study sociology in school. And so I'm a big proponent of looking to see where injustice lies. But I'm not going to assume that there is injustice just because there's a white person in the room. I'm not going to assume that there's racism just because there's a white person in the room and a black person in the room. But yes, I would say that that biblical unity looks like being unified around the principles of scripture first, understanding that Christ is our foundation and then having a heart posture that is, um, that is akin to Ephesians four. So good. I love conversations like this and I love you. I'm so glad you came on and we got to talk about this. Um, guys, once again, I I've said this a few times, but I can't stress that enough. Check out the description. Thank you again so much. I'm just going to, can you give me a virtual hug? Ready? Yes. Oh, yeah, that works. Yes. Yes. 